0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. We're going to spend the pod today talking to Douglas Stewart. If you don't know him, he's one of the biggest talents in the literary scene today. His new book is titled Young Mungo, and it's about the romance of these two teen boys in 1990s Glasgow that crosses class and sectarian lines. We'll hear about that book in a minute, but first I wanted to play you this interview he did back in 2020 with NPR's Scott Simon about his first book, Shuggy Bane. It was the one that got him all this praise and attention, including a Man Booker Prize. The book draws a lot from Douglas Stewart's own life, growing up the queer son of a single mother struggling with addiction. And in this interview, the two of them, Scott and Douglas, really connect over their experiences loving someone with an addiction and seeing them From your car radio to your smart speaker. NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
3: Shuggy Bane is a novel that cracks open the human heart, brings you inside, tears you up, and brings you up with its episodes of unvarnished love, loss, survival, and sorrow. It's on the shortlist for the Booker Prize. It's been nominated for the National Book Award and has already been acclaimed a masterpiece by tough-nosed Kirkus Reviews. It's the story of a little boy, Shuggy Bain, growing up in rough circumstances in the Glasgow of the 1980s, rife with families living under the strain of joblessness and depression and sometimes dealing with it in the worst way. Shuggy Bain is a first novel from... Douglas Stewart, who joins us from New York, where he lives now. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you, Scott. It's my pleasure.
3: I'd like to begin uh, to ask you to read a startling section that's going to reveal much about Shuggy, his father, Big Shug, and, and his mother, Agnes.
2: Agnes drew a fresh can of lager from a hidden place and gently pulled at the ring top. With a careful finger, she gathered the bubbly drips and dropped them into her mouth. She gave the boy the empty tenant's can. He had always liked the half-naked beauties photographed on the side. Shuggy was intent on this one. He had never seen her before, and he liked the way her name sounded when he spelt it out slowly, just like his granda Willie had taught him. she E na Shuggy would collect the empty cans from around the house and line up the women on the edge of the bath. He would stroke their tinny hair and make them talk to each other in imagined conversations, rambling monologues, mostly about ordering new shoes from catalogues and hooring husbands. Big Shug had caught him once. He had watched proudly as Shuggy lined up the women and spelt out each of their names phonetically. He bragged about it later down the rank. Five years old, eh? he would say. What a chip off the old block. Agnes had looked on sadly, knowing what was really
3: going on. What was really going on? So Agnes sees sees through to her son's true nature and respects it. But she doesn't always see into her own self very well, does she?
2: No, she doesn't. Agnes is a woman who has very modest dreams for herself. She grew up a great beauty uh, in Glasgow and she has married the wrong man, the Protestant taxi driver Big Shug. But she has very modest dreams. She wants a little bit of glamour. She wants a council house with the front door of its own and she wants clothes for her children that she doesn't have to pay for on layaway. But these dreams are sort of slipping away from her and uh, she's going to be unable to realize them. And so as that sort of starts to happen, she begins to descend into addiction and begin to disintegrate.
3: And um, you make it clear from the first line of the acknowledgments, you didn't have to look very far to find these characters, did you?
2: No, it is not a memoir, but it is drawn very closely from my own life. I grew up a queer son of a single mother. Uh, All of my earliest memories have drink involved in them. And when I was in high school, my mother uh, lost her struggle with addiction. But the book very quickly eclipsed my own sort of understanding of the city of the characters because I wanted to really sort of pull out and really show a community Uh, in strife and who was really struggling at the time, Glasgow had about 26% unemployment underneath the Thatcher government. And so there was a lot of people that were sort of brought to their knees by that.
3: How how do you take what you know through life and reimagine it for a novel?
2: I think one of the greatest things you can do when you've been a child who's suffered trauma and been around addiction where you have absolutely no control over it is actually to turn it into art and really sort of examine it up closely. You know, uh, men from the West Coast of Scotland, it's a very masculine society. Uh, It's very patriarchal. And we're never really sort of taught to express ourselves or to get in touch with our deeper feelings. And so I've always felt like my life has been two very distinct parts, the man who worked in fashion in New York, but then the boy who grew up in Glasgow. And so a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, writing the book was about sort of bringing those two halves back together.
3: Mm. I, I don't want to. I don't want Agnes to be defined just by her drinking problem, because she is glamorous and funny and and full of heart. But the drinking makes it hard to see that, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it it definitely does. But I do resist people seeing Agnes as the alcoholic mother um, because she is funny, yeah. she is exhausting, she's beautiful, she's proud, she's vain, uh, and she's incredibly generous. And here is a woman who is just limited by the options that were afforded to working-class mothers of the time.
3: As you may know, the experience you are right about is in in many ways very resonant uh, with me and my family experience, mm. except my, my father was the drinker. I kept reminding myself of something my mother used to say. You can love a drinker, but it's hard to respect them. And love needs both to go on. Hmm. I think
2: that's a very wise thing to say. Um, I come from a long literary tradition about writing about the struggling soul or the the poor sort of struggling mm-hmm. addict. But when a mother does it and when a woman does it, we f- we really take a lot of scorn in that. And I know that from personal experience, yeah. but we don't like to read about sort of fallible women. And of course, what that does is it means it keeps a lot of trauma at home and it and it just makes everyone's str- struggle so much harder for anyone who's going through it. So in some small way, I would hope that people would be able to relate to it um, or anyone who needs it would be able to find a comfort in it in that way.
3: Yeah. This novel has won such a claim already. Um, I'm sorry, whether you want to or not, you've got to write another novel. <laughs> what, what other stories are stirring inside of you?
2: Oh, um, actually, part of the the writing of Shuggy is we leave Shuggy, the main character, on the brink of manhood, and so I was left with a real sort of desire to go back and look at. What it meant to be 15, 16, and to be queer within a patriarchal society. Uh, You know, I'm always really inspired by very tender souls in tough places. I like gentleness Mm -hmm. in men, I like um, feeling and empathy, and so I'm working on a book at the moment that hopefully we can talk about soon, which is really about two teenage queer boys who are separated along territorial gang lines um, across sectarian violence, and who fall in love almost uh, like Romeo and Juliet.
3: Douglas Stewart, his novel, Shaggy Bain, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you so much. It's such an honor for me.
1: Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent, when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who
0: see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Okay, like we heard in that last interview, Douglas Stewart is all about finding tenderness in rough spots. And he uses that word, tenderness, a couple more times in this next interview with NPR's Ari Shapiro about his new book, Young Manga. It's about queer love in 1990s Glasgow. And just to give you a sense of how rough of a place Stewart is trying to find that tenderness in, he starts the interview by reading a passage where Mungo reluctantly joins a gang of Protestants to beat up a rival gang of Catholic boys.
1: Douglas Stewart entered the literary world with a bang. His first novel, Shuggy Bane, won a pile of major awards, including the Booker Prize in 2020. It told the story of an alcoholic single mother and her children living in the Sighthill tenement in Glasgow in the 1990s. Douglas Stewart's new novel, Young Mungo, takes place nearby with similar characters. But this book centers on a romance between two teenage boys, one Protestant,
2: one Catholic. And I think when you're talking about queerness at that time and you're also intersecting it with class or with poverty or social mobility, then the stakes are very different for the characters. You know, they can't just up and leave and go find uh, a different place where they belong in the world. They really have to face the world outside their door because that's the only world they know. That
1: world has a very specific way of speaking. So I asked Douglas Stewart to read a paragraph where Mungo reluctantly joins a gang of Protestant teenagers going to fight a rival group of Catholic
2: boys. Mungo came out of the close and joined a pack of proddy boys heading to the waste ground. He fell into formation amongst the baby-faced warriors. He swung his meatless legs in imitation of their gallus way of walking, his shoulders about his ears, and a sour scowl on his face. This swagger was a uniform as ubiquitous as any football top. It had a gangly forward motion like a big, bald, bandy-legged weasel, head swung low, eyes always fixed on the prey ahead, ready to lunge with either a fist or a silver blade. Mungo tried his best to wear the uniform, but he felt like an imposter. It was a poor imitation. Why is it important to you to write
1: in such a specifically Scottish Glaswegian way, even if that means... including slang that might be new to readers outside of Scotland?
2: Yeah, well, I think readers are always curious. And so the ability to to discover new words or new ways of framing dialogue is is a joy for me first as as a reader. But as a writer, I had to decide uh, how I was going to approach my characters because they don't often find themselves in literature and they don't turn to literature. And so if I had not written the books in their natural tongue and how they see the world, then I would almost be standing in opposition to them or or on the outside saying, hey, look at this. And I always want to be standing shoulder and shoulder with my characters. And I want them, first of all, to be able, if they could, if they were real people, to be able to pick up the book and, and really see the world as they know it represented with the language they would use.
1: There are also so many just wonderful words that I feel like people should know, like for a like fine, foggy, just this side of rain almost, like drich, to describe weather. There's so many good words.
2: Yeah, they're, they're so fun. And um, I find myself just thinking about them all day long. My favorite is gallus, which mm-hmm. is when someone is very bold or very confident or very self-assured. And um, that was always a big compliment when you were younger.
1: Your title character is named after the patron saint of Glasgow, Saint Mungo. Why did you give him that name?
2: Well, there is a backstory to the reason why his parents named him that. And because I think they were hoping after lots of division that he would bring some kind of peace to the city. They live in quite a divided neighborhood in the east end of the city. But for me, uh, Saint Mungo was uh, a really big influence on me growing up because he's a, he was an amazing saint. He had these very generous, almost childlike miracles uh, he brought a bird back to life. You know, he made a bell ring that didn't have a clapper. He did all of these things, and we learned them as kids. And and my character was as tender and as sweet as St. Mungo. And he's quite a saintly boy. He He can bear a lot. He can put up with an awful lot. And I just thought, what else could he be called because it's such a celebration of Glasgow?
1: Every saint suffers, and your Mungo endures many forms of pain. There were times I had to put the book down because it was such an intense reading experience. And as the author, the creator of this character, how did you decide how far to go? I mean, how did you choose what to put this young man through, what to put readers through?
2: That's a good question. I think, first of all, I try to write in a very honest way. And I try to, you know, sometimes characters or oftentimes my characters are going through more than one trial in their lives. It's certainly true of Agnes and Shuggy and Shuggy Bain. And, you know, I think people can be fighting battles on many fronts. And Mungo is going through uh, a question about masculinity. How is he going to become a man? He is trying to find his mother who has disappeared from the family. She keeps just vanishing. She's quite a tragicomic character. And also he's coming to terms with his sexuality. And As readers will discover, he's gone on this camping trip to the north of Scotland, which, you know, is really to show him some masculine pursuits and to get him out of the city, which is suffocating him for a little while. But he's also got to survive that in a way. And so I just thought about all the burdens on this saintly young boy and, and will he rise and, and will he be able to survive it? And for me, you know, if ever I write about violence or I write about heartbreak or sadness, I'm really only doing that to make the tenderness and the love shine more because I think I'm always writing a love story in some way, but some characters have to endure a lot in order to, to meet that with resilience and, and with hope. Writing is your second career.
1: You spent decades as a senior fashion designer for major companies. Are there things that you learned from your career in fashion that you apply to your work now
2: as a novelist? Yeah, in many ways, it was the only training I had for for whatever I was going to do in life. But I was known mostly in my fashion career as a textile designer. And so as a writer, I'm fascinated by the senses and by the sensory. I think about touch a lot. And that really sort of, you see it in my work because I write a lot about care and how we care for one another and also how we're often abandoned by those who should be caring for us. But my characters spend a lot of time in just looking after one another's bodies, you know, whether that's a caress or a hug or just being near one another because I think that's the most sincere form of love. And in a way, that touch has always fascinated me. And it starts really with textiles. But textiles taught me to pay very close attention and to have patience. And I think those are important things for any writer. You know, I really believe in if you focus on the stitch or the warp going over the weft, if you keep really uh, applying yourself to that, eventually everything ladders up to a, to a tapestry.
1: Do you think about what your life would have been like if you had started writing at the beginning of your career instead of the midpoint?
2: Yeah, I sometimes do, and I and I don't think I have any regrets because I was grateful to have so many chapters in my life and to experience so many different things. And in fact, it was fashion and textiles that brought me to New York, and so perhaps I wouldn't have come here and become an American citizen. I don't know. And so you can't regret. I think about it often, but I don't have any regrets.
1: You wrote your first novel, Shaggy Bane, over about ten years in secret, and now this book, Young Mungo, comes out with. Award-winning novelist (laughs) attached to your name. Does that carry the weight of expectations?
2: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a different game, and I think there is definitely a pressure there. But the pressure I try to focus on is just ensuring that my readers have characters that feel very real to them, and that they can they can feel bereft for when they when they close the last page of the book. I write to to connect with people. I write to. Uh, really move people and and that's my motivation. So I try to ignore the rest of it. But you know, this is a book I actually began in 2016, which was two years before Shuggy Bain even had a publishing deal. Uh, and it was four years before he was published. And and so in many ways it comes from that very personal, intimate space that Shuggy came from. Douglas Stewart, thank you so much
1: for talking with us about your new novel
2: Young Mungo. Thank you so much, Harry. It's it's been a pleasure.
0: That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Jeeva Verma, Jacob Conrad, Hiba Ahmad, Ed McNulty, Taylor Haney, Jill Craig, Samantha Balban, Melissa Gray, Jan Stewart, Dee Parvaz, Gabe O'Connor, and Sarah Handel. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
3: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one.
1: Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it.
0: How to have a good birthday
3: even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.
0: Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell
1: the smoke, I could smell the dust.
0: Voices that resonate. Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps Podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps Podcast from NPR.